welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and even a little failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further faster. And that conversation starts right now. Stepping into my office this week is retired United States Army Sergeant Major Keith Craig. The Sergeant Major is a public speaker, Hollywood entertainment executive. He's a decorated United States Army veteran and the author of Serving to Lead, Lessons in Adversity and Resilience from the Battlefield, Gridiron, and the Corporate World. Sergeant Major, welcome to my office. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad uh, that you were able to join us today. I'd like to really start, though, by thanking you for your service. Uh, You served 32 years in the United States Army, retiring as a sergeant major, and that's uh, that's a pretty formidable accomplishment. Thank you so much for that. Um, Yes, I've I've had a lot of a lot of experience, and and a lot of people who have, you know, helped me um, develop into the leader that I uh, that I become. And like many successful people things did not always come easy for you. And you did, it's easy from the outside to look at what looks like a really illustrious 32 years uh, in in the army. But I wanna really start briefly with just a little bit about your early story that begins in the deep South in rural Alabama. So could you share some of how and where you grew up? Sure. Long, long, long time ago, I grew up in a small country town west of Mobile called Yantley, Alabama. And my mother and I, um, after my father um, left for a job initially, ended up being there by ourselves. So we were in a place where you know, I was working on a farm with my, my grandfather, who was a sharecropper. Eventually, initially, I was just picking cucumbers and peas and ogres and things of that nature. You know how when you're very young, you, you don't know where you want to be, but you know where you don't want to be. And that was sort of my experience there, being on that farm. Well, and I loved your acknowledgement of your mom, Patricia, and her influence on you. And that she was working multiple jobs, really setting an example of developing a work ethic and doing simply doing what you needed to do by showing up. Absolutely. It, it was my mother, um, lover to this day, you know, so uh, so instrumental in my development as far as discipline and willpower, being resilient, understanding, you know, have if you have the right mindset that you can overcome anything. Um, and yes, it was her as the first inspiration uh, once I got of age enough to recognize, wow, what sacrifices she was making just to be able to get me a place to stay, a good meal, and even allow me to go to school. Right. And you shared in your book that even you were for a time homeless uh, when you were really young. And then you ended up joining the army when you were 17, which for people who are unfamiliar with how the military services work in the U.S., that means that you had to have parental permission to do that. How much of that adversity or working through maybe suboptimal situations, if you will, or people's expectations or lack of expectations. How much of that adversity do you think still fuels you even today? All of it. All of it. I still remember people in my early childhood days telling me that I wouldn't be anything because I didn't adapt so well to what my other relatives were doing. I didn't Mm -hmm. enjoy the things that I was, was required of me. And you know, back in the day, 
uh, people had a certain amount of kids based on how much land they were actually farming. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't know why it didn't feel good to me, but I just knew it didn't. And, and I really, truly, trust me, I really, truly wanted to fit in with the rest of my family, but it just didn't feel right. And I didn't understand why. So when I got of age, I was a football player, obviously in high school and um, had a couple of scholarships. But because of because of my my family situation, I had to do something. So that's why I, I, I had to convince my mom because obviously she wanted me to go to school. That was a dream of hers. And I had to convince my mom to allow me to raise my right hand to enlist into the military so that I could go to the military and send her my, my check, you know, cause in the military, you, you do have a place to stay room and board, and you also have a meal card. So, which allows you to go eat every day. As long as I had three meals uh, and a place to stay, I know it sounds like penitentiary, but, um, but my mentality was though, you know, at 17 was to take care of my mom. And it's true. She was a little apprehensive because of, wars and things like that. She didn't want me to ever go there. Me being the only son, the only, you know, only child at the time. She eventually allowed me to do that. And and, um, I had to become a man early on in my life. Well, and I think I read that part of her deal with you was that she would acquiesce or she would support you in this as long as you promise to eventually go to college. Absolutely. That was kind of her thing, you know. Um, In this world that we're in, you have to meet certain criteria in order to be able to to progress in life beyond where one generation was. And, and, mm-hmm. and she didn't get the opportunity to go to college, but she understood the value of it as she would uh, go around and, and, and catch rides every day to get to work, so on and so forth. And, and she would see people who had been to school would be her supervisor or her leadership. She knew that she wanted me to be at least in a leadership position. And, and this was some of the criteria she saw that her bosses had had. So, you know, and I want my son to live a better life. And, and, you know, every generation is supposed to try to push the other generation beyond even what they have obtained in life, uh, which is what I try to do for my kids as, as well. Which is amazing when you think about it, because she, she was able to take that personal experience of her own, having those role models and seeing that there was this one lever that seemed to be the ticket to more opportunities. And that she made that a condition of, of you being allowed to enlist in the military. I think what a brave thing for her to do. Absolutely. I mean, we were best friends. You know, I was her, I was her friend. I was her girlfriend, her son, her, her confidant, her, you know, we were just best friends. So it actually to approve my request and push me out of the door meant that she had to lose her companionship. Mm-hmm. At the same time, my mom is very selfless. So she always puts other people's thoughts and, and, and circumstances before her own. Uh, she just always had been that, that selfless leader. And, um, you know, that's what I always wanted to be, a great human being like my mom. You have such an amazing career. And I, uh, I was so excited that we were able to connect. My, on both sides of my family, I've got lots of family members who uh, have served as well, lots of uncles who are in the Army I had. One of my uncles who just passed away about three years ago did several tours in uh, Vietnam and was Mm -hmm. a point guy. It's fascinating to me culturally. And my mom's side of my family grew up in Georgia. Uh, She was one of 10 kids. And I think one of the things that resonated with me as well, even in your book, when 
when you wrote something about that uh, growing up dirt poor had nothing on me uh, <laughs> because because my mom, one of 10 kids growing up in Georgia, her mom would shell pecans and mm -hmm. babysit just to try to get enough money to feed the kids once a day. Yes. And when people like now complain about, you know, different, I, again, I, I call them first world problems. Exactly. Or, or they see what you're doing now that here you are, you're working at Disney, you, you know, you started an entertainment company. They don't realize where you came from and they just look at you and go, you don't understand. You're lucky. I always say people want your glory, but they don't know your story. Right. Well, we know that certainly when we look at those people who end up making really big contributions or end up having success in any way, shape, or form that that may come, have found that one of the tickets is surrounding themselves with great leaders or being around great leaders. And it sounds to me like that first person for you probably was your mom, actually. My mom is the epitome of what leadership is. And I didn't recognize it at the time because growing up, you didn't see females in leadership positions. We're talking about in, in, in the 80s, right? That's why I was so ecstatic to be speaking with you, you know, the first female F-14 pilot. I just believe that this world is going to become a better place when we put more females uh, in leadership positions around the country, because I believe that with the right amount of empathy, intellect, willpower, determination, tenacity, you know, you ladies will wrap your arms around the world and make it a better place to live. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. You shared a story about one of the humanitarian missions that you served on when you were trying to, I think it was after an earthquake, when you discovered that mm -hmm whatever food relief and, and medicine and supplies that if you gave them to the men that they would sell them on the black market, but the women brought them right back into the community. Am I remembering that right? You are exactly, exactly right. Yes. My organization at the time partnered with the World Food Program who bought millions of tons of rice and, 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 and oil, cooking oil and, and just different things of that nature to help to solidify the country at the time. It was during the 2010 uh, Katrina earthquake that hit us early January. And uh, we went over there. Obviously, we had a, strate a strategy that would uh, feed the, uh, the country. And that was to have every, every, every male, strong male of every household to meet at a certain location, a specific place and time every morning, uh, ODOC 30, and to uh, come and get this, this supplies. Now, these bags of rice weighed 55 pounds, and it was very heavy. So obviously, it made a lot of sense you know, for us, to us, to, to have the men come and line up and because they're in these lines for hours waiting on trucks to open and, and you have to obviously uh, have accountability for all these uh, nutritional supplements that we're providing to them. But what we determined later on when we went back and doing a, a AAR after actual review on um, where we were as far as the mission was concerned as far as sustainment was that the meals weren't making it to the house. Later we did some started doing investigation we realized the men are natural uh, hustlers if you will and Everything that you gave them for the family, they were going to try to sell it on the market. So it's a third world country and everything is a hustle there. And what we did was we brought every female, the Oma, if you will, the, the grandmother, the, the, the mother of the family and the, and, the, and the daughters, whatever, and they took everything home. That's when we realized that the human's mindset as pertained to different genders and different sex, you know, it is different. The nurturing spirit of a female I think it's just God's given that they just care for the family structure 
and the family's survival and everything went home. What they did was the men started to do other things, which was jumping our concertina wire and stealing our generators and, and all those things and, and nets and stuff like that. And they understood that we were that we were there to help them. But you have to understand a generator downtown Haiti, Port-au-Prince, is a car wash. So they have another hustle going on now. So they're trying to get an economical come up, if you will. So we have to make the concertina wire higher and stuff like that. But yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. The females took everything home and cared for their households. Wow, that's amazing. And you started off with uh, just a small handful of troops. And I think if I remember right as well, that uh, at the height of that, I think, didn't we have like 20 or 25,000 service members in Haiti? You're trying exactly to help right. With that relief restaurant? Yeah, it was yes, huge. Exactly right. We got over there first and, and set up a, a LSA, a life support area agency where we could uh, uh, facilitate, you know, like a, a base headquarters, if you will. You know what that is. Mm -hmm. So and then once everybody else, we did a call forward, everybody came over and sort of fell in on the embassy and different things of that nature and the airfields and, and kind of set up camp to where we wanted to um, set up a sustainment operation so that once we got them, everybody fed and, and, and the, the bodies place in the right place and things that nature and the mortuary affairs points and stuff like that. We want to help stabilize and then sustain the, uh, the mission. So even to this day, there's a unit in, in Louisiana that's responsible for that country as far as keeping overwatch. Yeah. I think it's that same earthquake, uh, that Jake Woods started, went down there with a handful of people. And then from that came team Rubicon. So mm -hmm. it was a, a catalyzing event for not only the people of Haiti, but I think, what's possible when we all work together and we take some of these lessons learned forward of what's possible that when you're an extremist, how can you help people out? I think it's, I think it's amazing. And that preparation that's required, which interestingly enough is one of the themes of your book. And I think even it, it seems like from what I've read about the importance of preparation in your life, when did you discover that preparation and not just hoping, wishing, or wanting for something was actually the key to your success. Well, I, I'll be honest. I learned that in the military. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we always had the five Ps, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I can say it on this podcast, mm -hmm. but, you know, you piss, piss poor preparation uh, prevents, you know, right. messed up circumstances. I'll put it like that, Mess, messed up circumstances. So uh, just because you didn't prepare and you failed, um, there's it, no one excuse but your own. So we always talk about accountability, things of that nature. So every mission that I set out on, we're taught how to um, obtain success from that mission. That's by identifying your target first, like shooting an asthma and having a, uh, a mission statement, having a plan. And then how is it that you go about having a strategy that speaks to how you go about operationalizing that plan? And that leads to preparation. And in the military, as you know, Carrie, we it's all about practice, 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 rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. When you get to game time, if you will, mm -hmm. um, it's second nature. And you as a pilot, you understand that I already know. It's second nature. And if everything is second nature to you, you don't have time to be in your feelings and to your emotions when stuff hits the fan. You just react according to your training. That's the importance of preparation. Right. And it's interesting to me that you have this decades uh, volume of experience with that. And I think it's a little unfortunate sometimes I see now that 
people are are oftentimes looking for the quick fix or the quick life hack when, as you know, and many in, who have done different operations, I think even within the veteran community, and now you're in a leadership position at Disney, that those skills around how to prepare, uh, how to stay committed, that it's not something that just shows up. It's in the uh, continuing to show up, continuing to train, continuing to prepare that uh, I think it's one of those things that I've heard you say before is that if it's if it's to be, it's up to me. And that when you mix that, that idea of taking accountability and even ownership with a dose of suffering, uh, yes. grinding it out, staying gritty, it's not pretty, uh, and then being willing to sacrifice, that that is what eventually leads to success. Absolutely. I, I always... Um talk about suffering plus sacrifice equals success. Obviously, you have to be resilient in order to, to uh, subscribe from that particular mentality, but it is a, it is a mindset. We say in the military, you have to embrace the suck and mm-hmm. understand that the suck is part of a process that leads to a long-range end state. So uh, if you understand the process, you won't be always sniveling and whining all the time. You understand that this, this means you're getting better if you're actually going through something that the average person hasn't went through. That's what makes you superior in what it is that you're doing if you actually embrace the process. It definitely builds resiliency uh, within yourself and I think even within your teams that allows you to bounce forward instead of every barrier and obstacle that you run into. You're like, oh, I knew this was going to, this wasn't going to work out. You're like, okay, not optimum. What's next? Right? So you're always being solutions focused, if you will, instead of um, wallowing in, in, in the situation you find yourself in right now, which, which would lead me to the question I'd be curious to know, because you do have such an enormous history of working with global teams and very different teams with different blends of, of people and different socioeconomic backgrounds, different biases even. What would you say is the most critical role of a leader during really challenging times? I would say communication. First and foremost, being strong, uh, clear and concise in your communication of, of speaking about the uh, the absolute, what is it that's real now? It's the conditions on ground. This is where we are. So if you're clear and concise on exactly what, what we are in the accomplishment of the mission process, are we at 50%? What will it take to push to the mission further down the road? Because I don't, I don't, I don't believe that leaders should be painting a, a pretty picture if the picture isn't pretty. I think they should be painting a picture that is clear and how we can how we can make the picture better. So it's very important to be honest and become trustworthy, if you will, so that they believe that you're not giving them sugar when it's when it's something else. Mm-hmm. So you, you have mm-hmm. to develop this trust in your team. So it's very important that, that you, you all see, you're seeing the same picture because you don't ever want anybody mm-hmm. questioning what it is that it is that you're saying is true when, you, when you're really telling a falsehood. So it's very important to get them a clear sight picture of what the optics are. And from there, this is how we're going to obtain uh, maximum mission support, if you will, and maximize everything that you're doing. And I'm sure you've experienced that not only in your time in the Army, but the time you spent playing football and even now as a leader at Disney, it's that 
that clear and constant communication, especially obviously right now we're living in a time of a lot of tumult, a lot of change, that if you're if you're playing hide the football um, and you're not communicating in a transparent mm. fashion with your team, then certainly my experience has been people will fill in the cracks with their own story. And that can be very dangerous to your team, to your organization, and to your company as well. So when you have that environment of mutual respect and of trust and clear communication, those are the things that then develop a higher performing team in a better situation. Um, I think Absolutely. Brene Brown always says, clear is kind. You know, sometimes we do have to face those brutal facts of the reality that we're sitting in right now. When, when you think about your time in corporate America, corporate America over the last decade has really transformed as more leaders really build what they're calling purpose-driven businesses, which can sound kind of fluffy. But why do you think that structure is really built sustainability for some organizations and maybe hasn't been sustainable for others when we think about purpose-driven businesses? Let me say it like this. I believe that no organization or institution is created equally, just like I believe that no person in a leadership position are created equally as, as well. I believe that you have a lot of people in leadership positions that are there because they either were there a long, have been there a long time at the, at the, uh, at the organization. And it was kind of the rite of passage, if you will, to elevate this person into a position. And then there are some people that, that get to those positions that are leaders, that are actual leaders. I believe that the organizations, the corporations have, have developed a process in order to safeguard, if you will, subordinates who may be underneath those particular people who don't really possess the leadership uh, values. It supports their lack of leadership ability. Uh, because there are a lot of people in leadership positions that aren't really leaders. They're just placeholders. And I, and I definitely draw a line down the middle between their managers, which are the ones that will sustain an organization's success level, meaning right where it's at. It will maintain. It won't dip. It won't go higher. And then there are leaders that go out and they strive to make it better. I believe the question you asked me is an excellent question, but I believe that particular structure has been put in place to support the people that aren't as gifted as the others, because I believe the world is broken down into three different categories as far as that's concerned. There are people that are winners, there are people that are losers, and then there are people that have learned uh, not how to win yet. So I think that system supports those people whose video doesn't yet match their audio. Mm. So when we think about that, I'm sure as a skinny kid growing up in rural Alabama, the furthest thing from your mind that you thought you would achieve would be to end up growing up to be a sergeant major in the United States Army. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not yes. even, you don't have a role model for that. No. So what role does failure have in your journey? Failure is not an option. I was very unfortunately fortunate where I had people telling me that I wasn't going to be nothing. So even to this day, I got to be honest with you, Carrie, I still hear that voice and I still use those, those words that would echo to me as motivation and inspiration. I can't quit and won't quit to this day. Um, 
because I believe that you can't, I, I think that there should be a, a, another book written, maybe a new dictionary that speaks to words that have a, a good meaning, but it can't be negative, like the word contentment. Being content is, is mean you've arrived to a certain, certain level to where you're comfortable in your life. But I also believe that word won't allow you to build new goals and strive for any new obstacles, if you will, a, a target, should I say. Because I think that you have to be a lifelong learner. Leadership is not a destination. It's a journey. So I believe that all of us need to adhere to that particular mentality, if you will. Do you have, I think there's that fine line between contentment and complacent. I think that can get blurred sometimes for people and you don't realize when you've crossed over from being content to sliding into complacency. And that's, it's dangerous for all of us because we don't see it, right? It's, it just sneaks we, up on you and throat chops you out of the blue. You, you don't right. realize you become complacent. <laughs> right. Um, because we, 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 we all grow up and, you know, and as we evolve as a you know, man or woman, we see what the American dreams are is being portrayed by, you know, my people, Hollywood and, and so, so so forth on networks and TV shows, things that nature. And, we, and we, we see what we think is the ultimate dream, the American dream, if you will. And when we think we get close to that, it allows us to, to put out our kickstand or to just press pause on anything else, right? Because if we're still working, then we ask the question, if we're still working, then have we really become as successful as we want to be? So we get we confuse ourselves with our with our thought process. Why would you continue to build and work a grind if you have a pool in your backyard or if you're driving mm-hmm. a Porsche 911? So mm-hmm. I think I think our mental makeup gets confused, and and that all depends on the people that you have in your circle as well. I was always taught if you're the smartest person in your circle, you're probably in the wrong circle. You need to change circles. You need to be always trying to elevate to another level. Do you have a personal mantra that helps you combat that negative self-talk or self-doubt or when you hear the the naysayers pop back up from your past? Do you have a personal mantra that you use to combat that? Well, you used it earlier. If it's to be, it's up to me, those eight words. Mm-hmm. If it's to be, it's up to me. I never want to let anybody down that I'm associated with or around. I want to make sure that I'm I'm carrying my fair share of the load or or I'm I'm at least I should be where I'm at based on what I owe the team. Because I believe that even though we are leaders, Carrie, I believe that, you know, we are obligated to our subordinates. Most people, I understand, for promotional reasons or, or salary increases or bonus reasons, they only look up. And I think that's wrong as, opposed, as, a, as it pertains to being a, an outstanding leader. I think you have to look down. And you have to make sure that your subordinates understand that you care just as much about their success on the job and their family members to get the optimum level of support and work from them that where it pushes the organization to the stratosphere when that happens, when they believe that you believe in them, for them, and you're going to make sure that little Johnny gets to college because you, it's important to you that that person who's who's way down the totem pole, eventually you're preparing that person to take your place as you exit stage left. Right. How does gratitude impact your leadership style now at Disney? Gratitude is, is that's kind of who I am, going all the way back to my mom. My mom, to this day, when we, when we have these conversations, she will always end the conversation by saying, uh, be humble. 
be humble, son, be humble, mm-hmm. you know, love you, be humble. Um, and it's kind of like who I am. Cause I was, I was born uh, Southern Baptist down in Alabama, went to church every Sunday, whether I wanted to or not trying to get out of church, go back to watch the football games, you know, but it was part of what I had to do. So understanding that, you know, I'm a person that subscribes from karma. I believe that whatever you, how you treat one person is how you, how you should expect to be treated. So it's very important to me to respect uh, not only my superiors, but respect the person I may meet on the street because you don't know today, me, tomorrow, you, that person may eventually be your boss, even though that person may be homeless. So it's very important that um, you support everybody because you also can learn from everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe I can learn something from a five-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. that I just hadn't paid attention before. So as long as you keep that open mindset, you'll always evolve as a human being and, 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 and grow as a leader. So humility and, and gratitude plays a huge role, humongous role uh, in my life to this day. Yeah, I think that's so critical too. And I, it's we can get tangled up now and, and we can certainly see examples of it all over, whether you look at uh, different professional athletes or even local leaders, community leaders, politicians, when you start veering off the path and you forget to stay humble or or meet people with humility, uh, that can be a very, very slippery slope. I'm glad to hear you say that 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 is important to you as well. And I can't imagine that you'd end up being a sergeant sergeant major in the army without having some humility as well. So I know we've I know we're coming up uh, on our time here. So if you wouldn't in mind indulging me in doing something fun, uh, okay. would you be willing to just answer a couple of rapid fire questions? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay, what is your go to music you listen to when you work out? When I work out, I listen to I actually listen to rap music. I won't get specific because I don't want you to judge me. No, I no, I wouldn't judge you. Even before this podcast today, you know, I was trying to get my juices flowing because this is the earliest podcast I've ever done. So uh, I, mean, I was trying to get my blood flowing and, and trying to get, you know, get, uh, you know, get ready for you. So, um, yeah, I, was, I just threw on some Rick Ross, you know, and. and, and uh, <laughs> yes. You know, so, a some name I haven't music. heard for a while. I'm I'm pulling him up on my Spotify as soon as we hang up. Thanks for that. See, you've inspired me, and you thought you thought I was going to shame you about your rap music. I I did. I did. You know, just just because I don't subscribe to all of it, all the you know the the you know the wording and things that nature. But but and and be honest with you, for most of my life, the years, it was really just the beats of the music to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of the words I didn't even understand, Mm -hmm. but I I love the music. And uh, you know, to later somebody would tell me. You know, sorry, Major, you, 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 you hear the words. I, I really don't. <laughs> and then they would download it and I would see the word. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I know. I shouldn't play I that in the office. Right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, there's th- things have gotten <laughs> a little spicy the last uh, 10 years or so. And I'll tell you what, it is, there's nothing funnier than being on the sidelines at a lacrosse game or Ooh. a football game as they're playing some of that. But, and the kids are all out there dancing. And all of a sudden, you'll see a couple of parents' heads whip around. And they're like, <laughs> what, what, what did that just say? And I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, yeah. That that just said what you thought it said. Right, right. And, and but, parents yeah. like, wait, what are you what are you gonna do to my kids? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know, All right, I digress. Who do you think of as a mentor? 
my mentor was, um, it still is, you know, also best friend is Charles Taylor. Uh, Charles Taylor was, has been an advisor to nine generals and admirals throughout the year, worked for DSCA, you know, worked over in Germany for multiple um, large organizations. But he's always been my mentor. Uh, every, every tour that I've been in, uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, Syria, Bosnia, he's always been that guy that I would call, lean on, and, and he helped me with my thought process, my um, decision-making, things I had to do when they were hard decisions to be made. Uh, even in combat, and he was in America, so he would be up at four o'clock in the morning while I'm over there across the water. So Charles Taylor uh, is my mentor uh, and my friend to this day. What do you think it was that you needed to learn from him? So much. I, I needed to learn, um, and this and this probably won't uh, enter into the, the um, leadership spectrum, but I needed to learn um, philosophy and and psychology surrounding human nature when you're dealing with mm -hmm. a person a certain age group as opposed to when you're mm -hmm. dealing with a person another age group you have to understand uh different perspectives and things of that nature uh where they may be coming from based on where they are coming from actually so you just have to learn that and and, and uh, um and he he's he's taught me that over and over and over again just lesson after lesson so um yes i love that and by the way i think that is 100 percent leadership I think the psychology of, of people and how you lead people is not a soft skill. It's a hard skill. It's the skill. If you can't figure people out and meet them where you are, the best you can hope for is that they're going to comply, but they'll never, they'll never join you. And, and this is one thing I learned in the military. You know, in the military, we, I walked around for 30 something years and I would always see that that rank on that person's collar, on that person's chest, right? You knew based on our schooling process of that person's rank, what had actually been poured into that person's uh, psyche. This is what leadership level this person should be at, and this is where their mentality should be at. And 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 so you would know that by seeing that person's rank on their uniform. And so as I in, as I exited into the civilians population, I realized you know there is no rank, right? So you 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 always think that you you know where a person should be. Uh, mentally, physically, psychologically, based on their age, and that's not always true. Mm -hmm. So, so when you understand psychology, you understand when you when you speak to that person, if that person is where you think they should or shouldn't be. And I would always, even to this day, I always, once I speak to a person, it's my it's second nature for me to give that person a rank that I just spoke to. That is Major So and So. Oh, that is Lieutenant Colonel So and So. Uh, 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 Bob Iger is the four-star general. You know what I'm saying? He's the chief of staff of the army. You know, whatever. So, it's my nature. Because what happens is, again, go back to being humble. It's very important to me to not speak over top of someone. It's very important to me to meet a person where they are, and right. that comes back down to making a person comfortable being around you. Because so right. many people are gifted right. and talented, and they take it for granted, and they always want to say, "Look at me! Look at look at me! Look at me!" And what they mm -hmm. do is they make people not want to be around them. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, you have to always make sure your people are comfortable in your space around you. Very important. So what do you think is the biggest misperception of you? The biggest misperception of me is, is that I'm a hard case. My physical disposition, meaning my facial mm -hmm. expressions, it has always been read wrong because I'm not, you know, Sergeant Major doesn't smile, right? That's not what we do. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you literally taught that, you know, because you, as you know, mm -hmm. to go to Sergeant, mm -hmm. to be a Sergeant Major, you have to go to your SAS, the United States Army Sergeant Major Academy, which is almost a year at Fort Bliss, Texas, which is a sister school to West Point. 
So they teach they teach us how to be senior executive advisors to the admirals and the generals. And smiling isn't on the curriculum. So I think the fact that they teach you not to smile, people misread you, even though you're happy, but you can't see it. So misconception right. is that I'm a right. I'm a hard ass, and I'm not. I'm 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 easy. I'm smooth. I know people listening <laughs> is going to say a person that says they're easy or smooth definitely isn't easy. He's actually covering for something that he's not. <laughs> right, right. So wrapping it up a little closer to where you are now, okay. uh, who plays you in a movie? Oh my goodness! I was just having that conversation last night for my book, for my movie. It's been a, it's been a few people we've been talking about casting. Uh, Will Smith was one. Oh yeah. Will Smith was one, and uh, Michael B. Jordan obviously was 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 the other. Mm-hmm. Um, even yesterday, someone sent me a picture where Denzel Washington had become honorary uh, honorary sergeant major, and I was like, "Wow, okay, well it's time for Denzel to meet a real sergeant major." Um, I did see that. See, I saw that, that as be- well. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, so yeah, those those. Are, if I was uh, uh, speaking with a casting a director, those would be my uh, uh, A, B, and C uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> All good choices. All good choices. So the last question, and maybe it's going to be the easiest one, or maybe okay. it'll be the hardest one. Uh, we have one hundred dollars, a full tank of gas and the day off where are we as in you and i where are we going how about let's just go to disney world Florida. <laughs> yeah yeah well i'm gonna assume that since you are very closely aligned with disney that then we'll have some free passes which will Absolutely. then allow us to okay some that hundred bucks is going to go to pineapple whip and Maybe a set of mouse ears. How about that? Right, 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 right. Definitely no, <laughs> no, definitely no adult beverages for sure. That's right. That's right. Well, Sergeant Major Craig, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your journey, where can they find you? They can follow me on Instagram at official Keith L. Craig, or they can go to my website, uh, servingtolead.life, L-I-F-E, or they can shoot me an email, actually, keithlcraig at execs.com. E-X-E-C-S dot com. I'll be happy to hear from them and um, accompany them on any journey that they may go on. Perfect. And again, your book is Serving to Lead, Lessons in Adversity and Resilience from the Battlefield, Gridiron, and the Corporate World. Thanks so much for joining us today, Keith. I really appreciate you. And thank you again for your decades of service. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure having a conversation with someone such as extinguished and esteemed as yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise, and thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation with Keith, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders just like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. And while you're at it, go ahead and connect with me on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. Finally, don't forget to grab your copy of my new book, Span of Control. It's on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target, Barnes Noble, and your favorite indie bookstore. 
I know it's going to be extraordinarily helpful to you on a personal level, and it can also help your family members, your friends, and even the teams you lead or coach. Help to identify their priorities, focus on what matters most, and find success even during times of chaos, uncertainty, and change. So thank you again for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.